The following transmission contains unencrypted instances of explicit language. Mature audiences are cleared to proceed. Shall we begin? Let's begin. When we talk about drama, we're principally interested in human relationships. This is why nearly all spy entertainment media focuses on human intelligence. It's a very rare story that gives as much love and attention to the more technical aspects of intelligence, such as signals, imagery, and communications monitoring. I'm Todd. And I'm Dave, and we like to talk about spy movies. Australia's Pine Gap miniseries is such a story, and we're excited to talk about it. This time joined by author and retired intelligence officer Francis Hammett on this episode of Spies Like Us. This time around, we're talking about a 2018 limited series, six episodes. Comes to us from Australian television, but uh, Netflix picked it up. The events are contemporary. In this case, that means current as all fuck out. Uh, The broad political background we've got here is U.S. versus China, and specifically about the U.S.-Australian alliance. Featured agencies are the NSA and ACES, Australian Security Intelligence Service, and that is similar to the CIA in scope and function. Uh, you want to tell us some about the the facility that uh, we're at here? Uh, yeah, it's a kind of radio and cellular and kind of any communications listening facility called Pine Gap inside of Australia. Um, which is pretty much what we'll be focusing on because that's what the show is named after. Uh, It's jointly run by the CIA, NSA, and the NRO, which is the National Reconnaissance Office. Um, We're not sure where some of the characters get their paychecks from, um, but there is one that we're pretty sure uh, had a CIA backstory. Um, But uh, there's definitely a lot of talk uh, between Pine Gap and Langley, uh, and a number of different agencies are mentioned. We've also got Chinese intelligence operations, are, uh, which are very important to the plot. Although we don't see them in the show, we see a guy. We see a guy we believe is working with Chinese intelligence. Uh, his activities are just mostly hinted at instead of broadly displayed. And one fictional yeah. group. Uh, not an intelligence group, but just one fictional group I thought I'd mention, the uh, terrorist group, is pronounced Shadi Nora in the show. For some reason, the subtitles spell it out, S-B-A-D-I-N-A-T-A, Spadi Nada, something like that. I found some plot synopses for the show online that referred to them as the Rohingya, which is an actual uh, ethnic group. And their, uh, their Arakan Rohingya Salvation Army uh, is, does operate in the area we're talking about here. So what I'm guessing is that um, for maybe, maybe it was for just legal reasons or maybe they just didn't want to call these people. You know, what I, you know what I'm saying? Maybe they're just renamed to a fictional name for some reason. Oh, yeah. Uh, Well, I think the main focus of the show was the interaction between all the different agencies and the big threats. So I I think they didn't want to go too deep into that. They were just like, let's just call it a terrorist group. 
Right. And, you know, their classification as a terrorist group is is not uh, universally accepted. They're mostly called terrorists by, you know, the people in that area. I don't think the U.S. or Australia have an official designation on them. So that's a good reason there, too, I guess. Um, the show was written and created by Greg Hadrick and Felicity Packard. It's produced by Screen Time. Again, it's an Australian... Um, TV company. Uh, you were you're kind of upset that it doesn't look like we're going to get a, a a season two, right? Yeah, um, I looked into it, and there's a bunch of articles talking about that the door is open, but there's nothing official. And uh, with the way the show ended, um, it was pretty clear they have something that they could go with if uh, production was there, or I guess production money. <laughs> or green lights, I guess. But uh, yeah, I wanted to see more about, uh, you know, with that nice little wink at the end, I wanted to see more with the ongoing relationship and how things were going to pan out with uh, that uh, giant business company guy representative. Yeah, even though the series, it it, it kind of comes to a um, semi-satisfying conclusion, especially if you like conclusions that are a little you know, open to interpretation, but there are a lot of things that they set in motion that definitely could have come out in like further exploration. One note on that, even though like we do, we do highly praise the show's um, realism. Uh, I think the single biggest knock on the realism of this show is just how much shit goes down in one week, like how much separate kind of even like not really directly related stuff. Um, yeah, it was pretty fast paced uh, and definitely kind of had you like wondering what was going to happen next. Right. But with, you know, like, I think like, I don't know, five or six kind of intrigue related storylines going on at once. Like it, it's hard for me to imagine a sequel. Like what are they going to have another week? That's that exciting. And then yeah, it, starts, right. <laughs> it, starts, it starts stretching my uh, suspension of disbelief at some point. We like the cast just fine. Uh, I, love, I love the fact that our main American guy looks so much like young Obama. And uh, we're not the only ones that see the resemblance. Parker Sawyers has appeared as Barack Obama in the past. He was in a 2016 movie, Southside With You. Yeah, that's like the first thought you have when you see him on screen it's like wait is that like uh a young obama <laughs> i really enjoyed i really enjoyed imagining this as a you know like fanfic backstory for him. oh yeah <laughs> like like this was his job before he went on to become the president our female lead has been in a bunch of major international productions uh some bunch of science fiction she's in the wolverine She's in something called Infini, and she also appeared as Private Sarah Rosenthal in Alien Covenant. I think oh, she, wow. I think she dies pretty early in that film. <laughs> Some more science fiction credits. Uh, uh, Ethan, played by Steve Toussaint, showed up in the Drudge Dread movie and also a Doctor Who episode. The Sylvester Stallone one or the newest one? The newer one. Oh, Oh, I didn't even recognize him. 
Yeah, the one that was uh, tragically underappreciated because that movie was awesome and they need to make six more of them right now. Right. <laughs> In my opinion. My favorite performance was the guy that played Moses. I took a look around, uh, mostly because I was curious to see if he's always like wearing that, if he's always like so, uh, you know, looks like a homeless person is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> <laughs> you know? uh, Mark Leonard Winter. And uh, in the few in the few trailers of other movies I could find, yeah, it looks like looks like he is. He's gonna be in um, he's gonna be in a movie coming up soon with uh, Daniel Radcliffe. He's gonna be in Daniel Radcliffe's new movie, Escape from Pretoria. Oh wow! Little uh, little Harry Potter, all grown up. Uh, trivia? Well, it's not exactly trivia, but I did like the fact that uh, Moses is such a science fiction geek that his alarms are set to say Danger Will Robinson. Yeah, that was pretty cool. You caught that. Right? <laughs> and um and yeah, just and just a fun one that uh did you know that did you know that air, uh, aircraft carriers are named after US presidents? That I did not. I think you mentioned that to me the other day and uh I was surprised to have never put that together. Well, here's a cute one. In this uh, in this series, the American carrier that they refer to is uh, the USS Josiah Bartlett. Uh, actually, I don't know if that's supposed to be Josiah, um, but uh, that's the that's the Martin Sheen guy from uh, the West Wing. So they used a fictional president, which is just kind of cute. Yeah, that is pretty cool. <laughs> Little nod to who's that? Aaron Sorkin, I think, did West Wing. Uh huh. Yeah, I would definitely imagine that the writers of this show were big fans and that's just that's just a little winky easter egg the writing is definitely high quality as we've said uh, a quite complicated intricately plotted show has a ton of technical detail related to intelligence as well as some very good counterintelligence tradecraft a whole lot for us to spy geek out about and that's why we have francis hammett uh, on board this time around to help us navigate some of it. Uh, we're very excited that he's joining us. He's already waiting for us in the briefing room. He is an author and playwright who served in the U.S. Army Security Agency, part of the NSA, during the Vietnam War era. Um, he later spent more than 20 years in the industrial security business. He's, re- in, he's uh, written extensively about... Uh, intelligence and industrial espionage. Uh, Some of his recent articles on signals intelligence uh, have gone to the International Journal of Intelligence and Counterintelligence and Vietnam Magazine. Currently, he's a screenwriter living in Los Angeles. He is promoting his film about Elizabethan era spy Christopher Marlowe, who also wrote plays and poetry. And his other work can be found on Amazon.com. Let's go meet up with him in the briefing room and talk some pine gap. Retinal scan complete. Validating security clearance. Clearance granted. You may now enter the briefing room. Hi, Francis. How are you doing tonight? I'm very well. How are you? I'm glad to hear it. I'm doing okay. I'm a little... Um, uh, my, my pulse and whatever, my nervous system is a little elevated right now from running around trying to put out tech-related fires over the last 90 minutes. But here we are. 
get well, Dave on board. Howdy. Yeah. Very excited to talk about Pine Gap. Yeah. All's well that ends well. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah, I think, uh, first of all, uh, we'll just, you know, very much thank you uh, for bringing this series to our attention because this is exactly the kind of stuff that David and I really like to geek out over. Uh, and I think it had been on our list, uh, but I'd only written, read a, like a brief blurb about it. And it just, it didn't sound, it didn't sound to me nearly as interesting as it turned out to be. Uh, so I'm really glad that you, uh, zeroed us in on it. Well, I completely agree. I enjoyed every minute of it. Um, well, I've seen it three times. I've seen it three times now. I'm not tired of it. There's always something new to see in it. Yeah, for Absolutely. sure. Absolutely, for sure. Let's start out. Let's start out by uh, talking to you a bit more about uh, your experience. Okay. Um, I served in the Army Security Agency, which is part of the NSA, which is, of course the primary agency that runs Pine Gap uh, these days. Pine Gap didn't exist as it is now back then. You know, that I mean, we were still using vacuum tube uh, radios and that kind of thing during the Vietnam War. I'm sorry, could you restate the name of that agency for me real quick? National Security Agency, NSA. Oh, yes, NSA, of course, of course. Yeah, and I was part of the Army security agency, a subset thereof. Now, basically most of the operator positions in uh, NSA are occupied by military personnel. It's a military agency, so established in 1952. So So does the chain of command of the NSA run up through the military, or do they report... Well, it gets a little complicated because in Vietnam, I've just done a paper on this for Vietnam Magazine, an article. Uh, the chain of command was very confused between NSA and the and the Army units that it, the ASA was supporting because we had tactical units in the field, direct support units. We had the biggest field station that we had at the time at Fubai in the Saigon suburbs, that did strategic intelligence. The DSUs did tactical intelligence, supposedly to support the combat units, but some of it had to be stovepiped all the way back to Fort Meade, you know, to be scrubbed and then sent back down. And by that time, it was useless for tactical purposes. Ah, right. And uh, that was one of the many... uh, ways that we managed to uh, screw ourselves out of a victory in that war. Briefly, I've, I mean, I've heard Fort Meade uh, referenced like many times in my life, but it's not, I, and I realize like it's a, it's a strategically important base, but I'm not sure exact, the exact nature of its contribution to our intelligence network. Oh, well, we have 17 intelligence agencies. NSA is the largest one. By personnel, it's also probably the most important one. Uh, with all due apologies to the CIA, <laughs> they get all the they get all the good movies, though, right? The CIA. <laughs> well, it's really hard to do anything exciting about copying code. It's actually a very boring kind of job. 
Most of the guys who enlisted in the ASA back during the Vietnam War did their four years and then got out. We had the lowest reenlistment rate in the Army. And uh, there were many reasons for that, not the least of which was the pay sucked. Uh, and, you know, uh, we weren't really in the Army, but we were expected to follow Army rules. And we had the the White Rock problem stateside. Uh, right. Uh, my father always said you could always tell when it was spring on an army base because all the rocks turned white. They had to be painted and neatly arranged along the uh, pathways and all of that. Uh, you know, appearances counted for a great deal stateside, not so much in Vietnam. And when we get regular army people levied in to do support positions, it was really a culture shock for them. They'd come in and it would be these guys who really, you know, had a bad attitude about the Army because they had been misled. There was a recruiting poster that said, no ASA in Vietnam. You can find it online. And they joined ASA figuring, oh, I'll never have to go to Vietnam. And then they would get through their school and get their assignments and by God, they were in Vietnam. <laughs> <laughs> the old bait and switch, right? Yeah, well, it, it, it was really kind of a stupid policy, but they were desperate to fill slots. They never did, mm -hmm. they never did fill them all. They stripped out uh, the rest of ASA uh, worldwide. We had about 20% of our uh, strength in Vietnam alone. Let me get uh, let me get this straight. I mean, I do understand. Like, so you you were in the field in Vietnam, or yeah, I was in the one hundred and fifty six aviation company. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Didn't you also do some work in Europe in Berlin? Uh, not in Berlin. I had a fiance in Berlin, but I uh, was at headquarters uh, ASA Europe in Frankfurt. Okay, so um, just to you know, was, take that, one, that, one at a time, which which came first? It was Frankfurt or Vietnam? Uh, Vietnam. Vietnam was first. Yeah, I, uh, right after the Tet Offensive, I volunteered for Vietnam. Volunteered. Thank, thank you for your service, oh, buddy. Yeah, definitely thank you. Well, look, you know, just part of the job. I, I really wanted to get out of uh, code school. It was driving me crazy. I couldn't hear the code. I kept screwing up. And they, you know, kept giving me extra training, and it was not a good situation. So I figured, you know, what's the worst that could happen in Vietnam? I might got sh shot and died, and it will be better than this shit. Right. <laughs> so I thought, uh, you know, one one question I might ask is, what what was a typical day in the life in military intelligence in Vietnam? But, uh, you know, you've already made it clear, like, you know, sometimes that could be pretty dry and boring. Could I maybe ask you for uh, an exciting war story-ish kind of thing? No, there were like, we were one company out of five. So we were all over Vietnam. We had a battalion. And then that battalion was subordinated to the 509th group, which was subordinated to the 8th uh, Radio Research Field Station. Radio Research was our alleged cover. Uh, I don't think it really fooled anybody. <laughs> well, it did fool other people in the Army and keep people away from us. We had a guy at one unit one day, a guy came by and said, what's that RR mean? And somebody just threw up, oh, refrigeration repair. 
<laughs> the, next, I love it. the next day he shows up with a truck truckload of broken air conditioners. Oh my goodness. <laughs> That's great. So so you um so you listened in on the signals and then you just uh like would file your reports and, and I help uh, identify uh, the targets? Uh, okay, direction finding basically you find the signal, uh but it was all in code. But this is you. This is you operating. Not me. Uh, not me personally. I was a clerk. Okay. Uh, I I washed out of the school. I couldn't hear code fast enough. This is what the operators did. Okay. But they were like uh, at Fubai. There were a thousand personnel, and then direct support units. There were another five thousand at the height of the war. So there were plenty of guys to do this. It didn't depend on me individually. Uh, you know, we had like 30,000 people in ASA worldwide at the time. Oh, wow. Yeah. And it's an industrial process. You have all of this traffic coming in. It has to be taken down. It has to be, you have another guys who decode it. And then you have somebody else who takes the messages and does what's called traffic analysis to see who sent what to whom. And, what and where, where are you in this process? I was typing flight records. Okay, and then also, like like you said, you had some uh, some courier responsibilities. Yeah, yeah. I I was the mail clerk, so I had a forty five, so that automatically made me one of the three couriers. So I would load uh, eighty pound mail bags full of uh, top secret lock mail bags. We'd go from Canto to uh, Saigon, you know, sometimes for an overnight if it was late in the day, because we couldn't fly at uh -huh. night. And, uh, you know, there's curfew at 6 p.m., so don't get too excited about that. There was no nightlife. Saigon, uh, Saigon was the safest place in the world to be at that time. There was a guy with a... Uh, <laughs> there, was a, there, was a there, there was a sentry on every corner. Oh, wow. Yeah. Right. What about, what about the road to and from? Well... How, how, how safe was that? And did you... Uh, well, did they were... That's did they require you to be uh, like combat ready? Did were you required to carry a firearm or anything like that? Oh yeah, M sixteen. I oh, would wow. look. Everybody in ASA was a soldier. We all went through basic combat training. Um, top of which at Fort Devens, there was a thing called the tactical training course, where you picked up advanced infantry skills, and you also, if you weren't careful on the escape and evasion program, got to experience what it would be like to be interrogated under torture. Oh, I have I have to ask Francis. Uh, is do you have any photographs from Vietnam from from your time there? Yeah, some. I would love to see them. I would love to see. Uh, I would just. It would just blow my mind to see you as a a, a picture of you as a young man in Vietnam. Uh, my uncle uh, served as well in in Nam. Yeah, uh, came out of it. Came out of it pretty. Pretty okay, you know, no PTSD or anything like that. I, I don't want to go too far into this. Why don't we talk about fine? Yeah. Why don't we talk sure. about fine? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> let's, run, let's run to it. I was, you, you want to know what I did in Frankfurt? I was a general staff NCO, but what I did, uh -huh. what I did for the headquarters was public relations. I was the NCOIC of public information for ASA Europe. Uh -huh. Which meant I spent two years going around saying, "Shh, we don't talk about that." 
okay. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. So that's uh, that's that's your your counterintelligence kind of uh, uh, contribution. Um, probably only E five in Germany could keep a story out of stars and stripes. I love it. I love it. Yeah, I would love. I would love to talk about Pine Gap. Um, uh, I kind of wanted to take a like a broad view at first, and then kind of zoom in first on the politics, just briefly. And then we'll talk about the facility, and then I want to talk about the different jobs that we see people doing at Pine Gap in the show. So, uh, not to spend too much time on it, but just really quick, especially as a veteran, you know, actually reviews of this show were mixed. I was actually really surprised to find any bad reviews of this show because I loved it. Right. Um, well, they, right. well, they probably didn't understand it. I mean, it's basically an Australian production, uh, you know, uh, that Netflix picked up. And that's where you get all the Australian politics, but those are very real world. Um, you know, the resentment, uh, the anti-war uh, people trying to get on the base and getting themselves arrested, you know, right. being convinced Christians uh, and not understanding, you know, the function. But Pine Gap has, you know, grown from being a very small thing back in the day to being, you know, as depicted one of three major bases for, uh, you know, monitoring uh, bad guys in the war on terror. Right. So you don't, you don't, uh, the, the politics of the show don't rub you wrong. No, I understand where the Australians are coming from. And I also understand their, you know, their love hate, uh, relationship with the Chinese and the fact that the Chinese are going to be like that Chinese, uh, you know, agent is sort of a agent of influence rather than a spy was, you know, he was pulling all the moves that he had to pull. Well, you know, the Australians contributed one small unit to the second effort in uh, Vietnam, and they were the most effective unit there. And during World War II, they had a big second uh, establishment, which they dismantled and buried after the war for reasons that still escape me. You know, starting from scratch, had to build up a major signals intelligence operation in a very short time when the war broke out. But they had been preparing for it for a long time. The North Vietnamese, uh, on the other side of it, in Vietnam, from 1947 on, they started with a one French uh, book about cryptography and built a world-class service 20 years later. Uh, so it's hard to do, and it takes a great deal of effort, and it's an industrial process, and it takes a lot of people to do it. This is why there aren't any real heroes. The, the politics are understandable because they're torn right out of the newspaper and the uh, the news down there. If you go on uh -huh. on YouTube, you can find a five-minute uh, clip about Pine Gap uh, by some Australian TV station where they're really exaggerating, you know, and making it sound like much more than it is, but at the same time, they're sort of rabble-rousing. Right. And... Uh, that just is a basic reportorial error where they don't understand the situation or the context. You know, Let's have, how did you how did you feel about the show as far as like its balance in narrative? Uh, I know it's like an Australian production, 
but they, they, it seemed like they were trying to show as many angles as possible. Do you think it's really lopsided on the Australian side? Or do you think no, they kind of no. got a lot of things right? No, I think it, it – well, you know, consider, first of all, you, you saw a few people in the show because uh, television doesn't admit for, you know, platoons of people and so forth. You saw all the people on the floor there. Pine, right. Pine Gap has 800 employees. 400 are American, 400 are Australian. Uh-huh. Everybody lives in Alice Springs, which is a few miles away. Mm-hmm. And which was this little town, which has now become sort of a major city. And Pine Gap, as is stated in the TV series, is the, uh, you know, economic support of the town. The Chinese mining company is sort of an afterthought. They're coming in there. They're going to provide jobs. They keep promising. But as the uh, tribal leader says, you know, you keep promising and not delivering. Well, right. let's be, let's. Let's take a moment, just in case any of our audience is listening and hasn't seen the show. Um, can you tell us what 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 is Pine Gap? What is that facility? Uh, it's a field station. Yeah, um, just uh, it's a, a more modern version of exactly what we had at Phu Bai and at Udorn in Vietnam. We had a uh, the first circular array antenna, the FLIR-9, was built at Udorn to monitor Cambodia and Laos because, uh, you know, we weren't sure that the Vietnamese were going to stick it, and we turned out to be right about that. I mean, right there in the opening credits, the show portrays Pine Gap as being one of the three most important, yeah. at least uh, U.S., related well uh, well okay this goes back to the you called it a, a like, com station or a, a, a recon what was the freight what was the term you used field station field station right yeah. uh first of all is that correct and then second of all before you answer that at one point in the show uh the character kath refers to pine gap as the crown jewel in the five eyes program yeah. so First part of the question is, is is that correct? Would you agree that Pine Gap is one of the three most important United States uh, uh, stations yeah. in the world? And, and, and does Kath's statement stand? Okay. Where is the next war going to be fought? Now, and against who? China. Oh, I hope not. <laughs> yeah. <God. laughs> Let's not do that. Well... That's the thinking. I mean, we used to think that the Soviets were going to come through the folded gap with columns of tanks, and that turned out to be wrong. Can I ask you to explain Five Eyes to us? Yeah, well, Five Eyes dates back to World War II. And originally there was a uh, signals intelligence alliance between the USA and the UK and Britain. And then added to that, Australia and Canada and New Zealand. That's the five eyes. Mm-hmm. So between those five countries, you pretty much can cover the world. It would be perfect. It would be perfect if we could add India. Right. And, oh, that would be okay. a big station. Okay. Though. Right. Yeah. 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 And then, and then uh, Pine Gap is, is more important these days than ever 
because it's closest to China where like you, you know, you raised the question, if you had to guess, where is the next war going to be fought? Well, well, it's, well it's, it's not just, there. it's not just China. It also covers Vietnam, uh, Cambodia, it covers Japan, it covers North Korea, and it cover, sure. covers a good part of uh, Eastern Russia. There's oh. another statement that's made by a character in the show, uh, Ethan, uh, you know, also, like, remember, like, uh, you know, of all the quotes they put, but in the title sequence, like, the last one is Ronald Reagan saying, The maxim is, dovayai no provayai. Trust, but verify. <laughs> yeah. Which, as we've discussed on this show previously, uh, he was... Uh, plagiarism. plagiarism. Yeah, he was plagiarizing. Yeah, I think that was in Chernobyl, the, the miniseries on HBO, that uh, one of the, I think it was the KGB general had mentioned that somebody over there had said it and Reagan had... I've, know, well, I've heard that comments. multiple times. The reason I bring it up is because a character in the show, Ethan, again, this is our American head honcho at Pine Gap, he makes a claim that, uh, you know, that trust but verify thing that Pine, he claims that Pine Gap was what was necessary for Reagan to, quote unquote, verify, yeah. uh, you know, to confirm that the Russians or not the necessarily the, well, the Russians, but the USSR at the time uh, that they were adhering to the arms de-escalation. Is that correct? Well, that and Menwith Hill. Okay. Menwith Hill was in the north of England, and it's uh, focused very much on Europe and beyond. And it okay. also and it also uh, goes down into uh, the Near East and uh, northern part of Africa, things like that. A lot of the locations of these kind of things has to do with the ionosphere and how far it will bounce a signal. We used to have a uh, field station when I was in in Asmara, Ethiopia, which is now part of Eritrea. Eritrea didn't exist then. And it was a perfect place to listen to Soviet traffic. How does how does that work? Is that a, is that a function of distance from the equator? No, it's a function of... Uh, the basically the ionosphere acting as a sort of cover to the atmosphere and the uh, signals bouncing along the top of it. Right, but what I'm what I'm trying to understand, if if I can, is to understand like what makes one location uh, better than another with regards to the ionosphere. Well, it's it's tricks of geography. Uh, nobody actually knows. They send people out with the receivers to find these places. Um, is it, you know, is it affect? Is it affected by the weather? No, that's one of the beauties of it. Okay, is it affected by geography, like mountains and stuff? Well, you're. Uh, it's above the mountains. That's that's okay. the, the point of it. It bounces the signals so high that you know you're you're talking about the ionosphere is like a hundred thousand feet up. Okay, top. Uh, one of the reasons you brought this show up was how realistic you felt the show portrayed a lot of what they do at a station like this. And there were a number of, um, I guess, positions that were being filled. One of our protagonists was Gus, who who was the MD and had that role strip from him. Can you, can you talk about what that was? Is, is that kind of like somebody that just runs the floor? Yeah, basically he's in charge of everything. 
And I wonder if your experience was anything like that. Was it a big open floor where everyone could talk to each other and the MD was like right in the middle where he could like say, oh, oh okay. over here, I need this, over here, I need this. Okay. Or were you all okay. like segregated into cubicles kind of uh, stuff? Let's back up and explain the nature of compartmented projects. I had a top secret crypto security clearance. That did not mean that I had access to the operational areas. I never did. I had no reason to be there. Then nobody would have ever let me into them. I was not cleared for them. I was not cleared for that information. I was not cleared for those programs, except to the extent that when I edited the annual historical reports for all the units in Europe, I was able to, you know, in a non-classified way to get a pretty good uh, idea of the order of battle for Europe. And all that got me was a 10-year travel restriction. I think you had mentioned about Pine Gap that you really, really liked uh, the counterintelligence as well as the security. Yeah. Um, yeah. When the, uh, what's that guy's name? Rudy? Yeah, Rudy. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We love, we yeah, love us. Yeah. Rudy. Yeah. He's definitely a, he's definitely a Spice Like Us podcast favorite in the show. <laughs> well, when he lays out, you know. It's basically education for the audience. It's what we call in the trade made in Butler dialogue. It's exposition. You know, uh -huh. uh, people that are already there already know this stuff, but he's explaining it to them again. You know, it's going to be one of these, you know, six reasons that they're betraying their country. And that was, you know, that's always been true. Wait, I counted for. Wait, hold on. Yeah, I think I think they had mice as the. Is there two extras that they didn't mention? Well, what did they mention? Uh, uh, money, ideology, compromise, and ego, which is the mice acronym. But if there's six, please tell us the other two. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, well, let's see. Um, psychosis. Oh. Yeah, and uh, yeah. Um, sure, and which one? Which one would apply to me? Like, if I were, you know, if I were an intelligence operative, uh, I can tell you definitely my big vulnerability would would be I would just get really drunk and just start spilling shit. Like, where 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 does just being a a drunk uh, fit on uh, on mice on the mice scale? Um, well, Probably. well, it's not ideology. It's uh, basically a personality defect. Yeah. Sorry. Oh, so probably compromise. Compromise. Yeah. No, I think. It, I, well, I think it's ego. If you're just, if you're just like, you know, so full of yourself that you can't uh, help yourself from telling people about, you know, stuff. Uh, I I remember. You know, this is a. I want to tell a sad story here. Uh, I had an employee in the quality assurance trade that um, he wasn't liked by anyone. A lot of the other employees came to me as their manager with uh, complaints about him. And when I looked into it, it was mostly that he kind of just really seemed very full of himself and very keen to uh, make up stories that inflated his own importance. Yeah. Personal, um, personality. Personality. Uh, and, but I, I, I wanted to talk to him about it a bit. And he kind of said like, well, I, I've kind of been thinking about 
going into the military and I, I took the time with them, you know, uh, trying to be sympathetic of saying like, well, I think that actually might be an okay idea for you. And, you know, uh, I, I definitely encourage you to explore other options. Two years later, uh, I was approached by, I think, um, I think it was Navy, it, it was Navy or it was Air Force. I don't remember which, uh, but they wanted to interview me about that guy. Um, and I was like, okay. And so I had a meeting with uh, either a Navy or a uh, whatever. They're just uh, a Navy or an Air Force. I don't know what their exact like um, role was. Counter, or, probably a counterintelligence agent. Well, right. And they informed me that the reason they were interviewing me was because this individual had a, uh, was up for a, um, you know, a certain intelligence clearance. Yeah. Top secret. And they wanted to ask me how I felt about that. And I felt really awful because I didn't know if this individual, like I said, he was a young man when I'd known him and discharged him like two years ago. And I was, you know, I had been encouraging of him, of his idea to go into the military and was hopeful that that would be a productive change in his life. But when they asked, they were basically asking me, how, how comfortable did I feel about this individual, you know, getting a, a certain intelligence clearance? And I had to say, I don't feel comfortable at all. Oh, well, that was the right thing to do because people do not change. Well, he was young. I, you know, I think he was still like a teenager. Like, I don't, I don't know. But I, I, I mean, you're right. You're right. I had to, you know, I had to respond with the information that I had and not what I could have guessed or hoped for the young man. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, the thing is that he, if he's in, they'll find something else for him to do. It'll be called the needs of the service, and they'll, I don't know, send him to cook school or something like that where he can't do any harm. The example of what happens if you let that go unchecked is you get somebody like Edward Snowden in there who suddenly wants to save the world and, mm -hmm. and spills thousands upon thousands of classified documents, most of which he's never read and doesn't understand into the public domain. Uh, you know, so you did the right thing. Yeah. Better to be safe. I hope so, but, but I think you can also understand like my human impulse to, to never uh, feel entirely comfortable about it because, uh, you know, I feel like, you know, I influenced that guy's life in, in an impactful way, and, and I don't ever, I won't ever have any direct uh, evidence that I did do the right thing. But thank you for saying that, Francis. Well there, well, there are all sorts of things you can do in the military. I went into military intelligence because I had always intended to from when I was a kid. You know, if I was in the service, that was going to be what I was going to do. I certainly wasn't going to go into the medical service corps or anything like that. My father threatened to disown me if I did that. Hi guys, it's uh, Todd here. Uh, unfortunately, 
We lost a little bit of audio at this point in the recording, and so it's just necessary for me to just jump in and mention that the, the next subject that we're talking about pertains to Christopher, Christopher Marlowe, who was a spy in the Elizabethan era and is the subject of a uh, film script that uh, uh, Francis is currently trying to shop around town. Here we go. The reason that I wrote that screenplay, or which was originally a stage play, was at the time I th discovered the story about him being a spy, I was working for the Encyclopedia Britannica, doing short articles for the Micropedia. And I did all the intelligence agency stuff, and I discovered when I did MI5 and MI6, the story about him having been a spy, and I said, that's a great idea for a play. It really is. And then there came up with this little inconvenient thing of, well, gee, he was that way. And, uh -huh. and I had to think about it, but there's, there's no way around it. It's history. It's established fact. And it turns out to be a plot point because his lover betrayed him, uh, you know, got him into major trouble and probably got him killed. Uh, so that's drama right there. I really like that you pointed out that um, not, you know, not stereotyping people, uh, and especially with that kind of orientation, because our character Rudy had that similar orientation and got compromised because of it, and he ended up being a double. But you had mentioned the counterintelligence that Rudy had pulled out as far as his investigation of who the mole was. I really, really liked how Pine Gap uh, really had the audience guessing. Like there were so many good motivations between all of the characters yeah. and they all seemed like it was them, but you know, in investigations or in something like counterintelligence, you can't just like jump on this person because they seem to be the most, you know, even though Rudy had guessed it from the beginning, he still went through the process and he didn't trust only his intuition. He had the intuition, but he also went through the process of, you know, especially with the thing with Gus, with uh, the girl, the, the homeless girl staying at his house, he was just Mo trying to do the right thing, like kind of taking in a stray cat. You know, they thought he was, uh, you know, might have been compromised off of that. And uh, or you could look at Yaz's background with uh, how her uh, experience as a child could have been uh, politically motivating. Um, and then you, you look at uh, Eloise, who just kind of got overlooked in yeah. her professional ladder climbing. And and I really, really liked how you, you, you kind of just brought up um, how it's important not to stereotype. And I think that's a really big theme in this show, especially during the investigation. You know, the, I, I think it's really important to, to stay objective in things like this where, where you do it, you know, uh, and you had mentioned a lot of the counterintelligence and the, the investigations were really well done. What, what are some of your thoughts on that? On, on kind of Rudy's approach to uh, determining who the leak was? Well, you know, he, he had to do it uh, methodically because uh, there's, you know, going to be a morale problem. He's got a problem with the Australians. You know, uh -huh. one of them's been read in on that. They're already trying to get rid of people that don't need to be gotten rid of uh, uh -huh. for political reasons. You know, the local Australian director, the co-director, is getting a lot of pressure from Canberra. Uh, uh -huh. So I thought all of that was very realistic. And, you know, 
sort of thing. Now, the other thing about Pine Gap is I, I think it's a wonderful simulation of a real thing. But one of the things you have to realize is that it may look absolutely nothing like the real thing. In in what way? Yeah, explain explain that. Well, for well, for one thing, you know, I've never been on the floor. I don't know for a fact that there is a floor, but there's this thing in theater called suspension of disbelief. I, well, of course, I believe uh, I believe that entire setup. And when I see those little signs with things like comment, like communications uh, intelligence is over here. Well, that's a signal to the audience, uh, to the like one tenth of one percent who really knows what that term means. Somebody has created a very convincing set there, you know, especially like uh-huh. the, the voice of God thing, you know, from Denver, you know, right, uh, right, and Langley and so forth. But I have no idea if that's how it actually runs. I wouldn't tell you that it's true or not true. I'm you told us. Uh-huh. You told us. Uh, let's make sure we squeeze this in. You told us something really interesting about the gigantic golf balls. Yeah, yeah. That we see. Uh, what What are those all about? Well, well. Basically, the golf balls are covering their canvas uh, uh, shields, covering the antenna arrays, so that nobody can determine what the frequencies of those antennas are. That's well. How. How how would how would canvas coverings? Well, you can't take a picture. You can't take a picture through a canvas covering. Right. If they didn't have the canvas covering, how would you determine the frequencies? Well, basically, if you could, uh, with photogrammetry, determine the true length of the antenna, you could pretty much get the frequency. Simple physics. That's really. I think that's really fascinating. Uh, um, definitely. We would definitely not get that in a story like whoever, that. <laughs> whoever, whoever figured that out, I'm sure got a juicy promotion. I wanted to, I wanted to next like uh, go through the different people in the room and the jobs that they are, are claiming to do. Uh, we talked about MD a little bit. That's the mission director. Next up would be comment. Yeah, communications intelligence, and basically that's. Uh, the internal stuff, uh, the that's our uh, signals, uh, basically back and forth monitor, monitoring those. We have a motto, had a motto in ASA, and God we trust. Everyone else we monitor. <laughs> <laughs> communications, bad communication security is one of the reasons we lost the Vietnam War. Really? Yeah. Oh, wow. Tell us. Tell us. Tell us. Well, people talking in plain language and clear, not following proper procedures, not using code words, not changing uh, call signs or frequencies when they were supposed to, and using made-up codes that, you know, have popular culture references that the Vietnamese had no problem uh, figuring out because they also drank Coca-Cola. Uh, and uh, basically there were commanders, the higher you went, the worse the problem was. There were commanders who got their own men killed that way. Oh, my. Because the the Viet Cong and the Pavan would know where they were going to be and would ambush them. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Uh, That's pretty serious. You definitely got to watch what you're talking about over uh, communications like that. Okay. So it's very important when you've got operations in the field to have good communication security. Now, 
Uh, ELINT is all the non-voice uh, or non-signal uh, stuff. It's things like radar. I'm sorry, that's ELINT as in E-L-I-N-T? Yeah, electronic intelligence. Okay. Yeah, that's, we didn't. We, that's that's a flag we didn't see on anyone's desk in Pine Gap. Okay. We see. Uh, you know, we have Eloise over there on Imint, which is image intelligence. She's yeah. got the eyes in the sky. Yeah, that's that's all of the spy satellites. That's Keyhole, uh, the KH eleven, and uh, things like that. Uh, there are a number of different things that happen with imaging intelligence now. It used to be just pictures, but now. Uh, from they, planes, or well, I no, mean, well, not just planes. Would you would you qualify like I don't know photographs? No, and, you know, they don't use airplanes for that anymore. U twos and so forth. They'll right, use, right. Uh, but back in the day, back 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 in the day, like because there was, uh, you know, what we see a lot of imminent is satellite imaging. Yeah, and I'm really confident in saying that the level of satellite imaging technology that we have right now vastly outstrips what kind of work you were doing. Oh, yeah. yeah uh, but it, she's also getting pictures from planes and drones. Yeah, uh, well, dr drones for the close-ups. What other, what other kind of, what, what else would qualify in, in imminent? No, well, uh, if you had uh, field agents on the ground taking pictures of with ordinary uh, digital cameras and uploading those images, that would be uh, in the same sort of thing. Sometimes you need to get a close-up, and sometimes if you can't see it uh, looking straight down and you want to try and have somebody get in there with a high-powered telephoto and uh, shoot it from the side and see what it is, if it's a tank or just a dummy tank. Right, right, yeah, analyze analyze the image. Okay, awesome. That was one of the deceptions we used in World War II, rubber tanks made out of rubber. <laughs> I've actually never heard that story. That's awesome. Yeah, before the D-Day landings, when the Germans would send over observation aircraft, they would see this tremendous armored buildup in uh, in Scotland, and it was all rubber bottles. Oh um, wow! <laughs> how That's about a great decoy. how about Moses's job? Uh, his little sign says Fizient, F I S I N T. And when I looked that up, uh, a quick check on Wiki says that that used to be, that's a, a intelligence that used to be called Telint and yeah. had to do with telemetry. And, and he does talk a lot about telemetry. Telemetry would be specifically for missiles, uh, for launching missiles. Very important job. Oh, well, and that's I, why he kind of yeah, was the yeah. go-to guy when the missiles were launched, and he had to try and figure out what kind of missile they were. Yeah, yeah. Well, well this is what I was talking about with mass measurements uh -huh. and, and signatures intelligence, uh -huh. uh, because each one of these things has a unique signature. Uh, it, you know, it comes across the same way. You, you can analyze it, you can see it, you can tell what it is, and. Uh, you know, how it's being used. And that applies across the board. I first discovered that with the IBM Selectric typewriter. Uh, it threw off the signals that allowed you to decode what was uh, being typed. So I'm you, sorry, could you explain that to us? Well, you could place a bug outside of an office 
to pick up the uh, uh, animations, the electronic animations from the spinning ball on an IBM Selectric, different position for every letter, so it was very easy to decode what was being typed. Wow. And if it was a classified office, there, you know, there went all of your protection, you know, all your safes and so forth. They had to, had to figure out ways to shield that. And how, that was my next question. How do you shield against that? Well, in my day, we just continued using manual typewriters. Well, I've got uh, sitting here more out of sentiment than any utility, an Underwood 5, which is exactly the model that I used when I was in the Army. I bought it for $35 online. Do you know Do you know who is, like, the most famous uh, collector of typewriters in the yeah. world? Yeah, Tom Hanks. Yup, yup, yup. That's his. That's his <laughs> bag. He loves typewriters. <laughs> He's probably got one of those. Yeah. Oh, almost certainly. Yeah. yeah. I, mean, I mean, the army bought them by the tens of thousands. It kept those companies in business. So let's come back though, like, because my question is, uh, if if I, I was wondering if you had any insight on why, um, Telint. Used, it used to be called Telint, but now it's currently called Fizint. It oh. is, I don't even know what Fizint is supposed to stand for. Well, FI. Uh, firing instrumentation. Okay. Oh, okay. Oh. Firing instrumentation signature. Right. So, yeah. So, would I mean, maybe is there any... Can you imagine any uh, change in technology that required it to be renamed, or is it just no, that well, they... it's a change in targeting, basically. Uh, you saw the thing in the uh, paper about the North Koreans firing another missile? Yes. Uh, over the weekend? How do you think we knew? Yes. Because we, we picked up the signal as they were launching. Oh, so that is very much related to Massint. Where are you kind of picking up different yeah. measurements and signatures of things yeah, that yeah, are going? Yeah, it, I, I, it's a sub part of that. Oh, so, oh, so it's kind of like a sub massant. Because I, I was reading somewhere like, you know, uh, massant was really picked up during the Cold War by reading kind of signatures of uh, radioactive materials in certain areas to determine if. Uh, certain um, radioactive elements were being enriched, or something like that. Is it? Would it and so this would be basically more of a sub version of that, determining if something's being fired, and that's why Moses was really focused on what type of missiles were being fired. Well, the, the most important thing that we had in Germany in that regard when I was in was a uh, the frequency of uh, you know a Russian truck starter. Uh huh. We knew every time they started a truck. <laughs> what? <laughs> wait, 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 what? <laughs> That's okay. amazing. Fuck you. <laughs> Fuck you, Francis. I'm calling a bullshit card on you. You have to explain this. No, it's very simple. It gives out a unique signature. Oh, my God. Okay. So uh -huh. if you have an antenna directed at it, attuned to that particular frequency, you can pick up the signature, and if you have, like, two or three signatures, that's one thing. You have two or three hundred signatures, that's a potential invasion. Oh, my fuck. 
I love, wow. I love it. I'm I'm losing my shit right now. I am <laughs> that's, peeing in that's my That's a nice jump. <laughs> that's 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 incredible. Uh, I I never would have even guessed that that's even possible. No, that's, that's really that is your yeah. that is your tax dollars at work. Yeah, well, right, I'm glad I'm, to know. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> what about you know like that that reminds me you know uh francis i i recently listened to an episode about uh osint that's open source intelligence which yeah. is kind of yeah your thoughts well uh, you do that all the time you read the newspapers yes that's what that is oh right right okay so yeah awesome stuff, uh, stuff that's stuff that's in public published when you put together a picture of an intelligence target you can uh, took all these little bits and pieces and you put all of this information together in the same sphere and the mm -hmm. point of pine gap is you have all of the heavy high-tech stuff but you also have all of the other things you may notice that one of these stations on the thing is Langley that's CIA so CIA is tied into that pine gap that we saw in the series Yes, sir. Uh huh. Yeah, uh, you know that's where their headquarters is, Langley, Virginia. This this episode that I listened to about uh, OSINT, though, you uh, like OSINT has really exploded in like the internet social media age. Yeah. Where uh, you know, like you know, because you got like, for instance, one of the stories they talked about was like the Russians taking back Crimea or something. Yeah. Right. And of course the Soviets were like, or the Russians were like, Oh, we didn't do that. But like, you can go on Facebook and you can see soldiers, Russian soldiers taking selfies Yeah, <laughs> and you can, and you can look at the tanks in the background of it and get intelligence from that. Yeah. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's all true. And one of the problems that we have with XASA guys at my age because we have like uh, well, about a dozen different uh, Facebook groups, and every once in a while, somebody will start talking out of school about something which is still fairly sensitive. And then I had to reassure people, you know, that some of the stuff that I'm writing about in this article is all from stuff that has now been declassified, so we're all safe. We can't give anything away that hasn't already appeared in public. But in, order, but in order to know, know that, you'd have to scan through 1,200 pages of material. And, but uh, oh. stuff that was previously top secret crypto, Umbra, no form. Umbra was a code word that was actually illegal uh, to disclose to anybody. It could be court-martialed for using it in public. It, it was it meant, it signals intelligence uh, channels only. And no foreign means no, you couldn't give it to any foreigners, even allies. So you had to make sure that the Brits or the Turks or whoever else was in the field station. We had a big operation in, in Turkey, in Karamasel. I think we still do. Yeah. No, uh, um, it sounds like it's a lot to keep track of, of what is classified and what is not, or what is classified for certain channels and what is classified for other channels. How do you keep track on that? Or you just kind of just keep well, a tight button list? Well, the thing was that all the compartmentation, you know, uh, 
all these little fiefdoms, that was done away with. They went uh, towards what they call fusion, which is what you see in Pine Gap, where everything's uh -huh. in the same room. That stuff all used to be separate, and people would guard it very jealously. And uh -huh. so you never got a complete picture. Well, that didn't work. When right. did when did that change come around? Do you think? Uh, in the eighties. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Actually, so end 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 of the Cold War because we we generally mark the end of the Cold War as like nineteen ninety. Uh, would you agree with that? Uh, yeah. When the wall uh, when the uh, Soviet Union collapsed, uh, that's pretty much it, except for one thing. That was a hiatus, and it's back on now. What do you yeah, think? it's it's it, yeah, it's it's back. Well, it's back well, in a well, in a well, new well, take a look new at, version. Yeah, well, take a look at who's running Russia. Right. Oh well, yeah, I, I <laughs> well, KGB general, right? Yeah, uh, Colonel, a hundred percent. And that guy has. An he was a lieutenant colonel. He never made. They never made a higher rank. He oh really? Oh, oh, so he's just kind of puffing himself up then, huh? He uh, has no, a major no. axe to grind against the U.S. Well, well, let me let me tell you how how it went. Uh, the head of the KGB in, in the uh, 80s was a guy named Yuri Andropov. And Yuri Andropov saw that the system was going to fail and that the USSR would ultimately go away. Probably not in his lifetime, but fairly soon. So he needed somebody to manage the transition. And he picked Gorbachev to do that. And it almost went smoothly, except Yeltsin got in there for a while. And, who mm -hmm. Gor and Gorbachev picked his successor, and that was Putin. Oh. <laughs> okay. Kind of a difference in character there. I've always heard Gorbachev was kind of the more uh, open to peace negotiations. Glasnost. Now, yeah, Glasnost. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah, well uh, you know, people were, okay, sure, we believe you. Right. Okay. I see. I see. <laughs> well, you know, what's the alternative? You know, maybe you can bring them over and maybe you, maybe they're sincere. But mm -hmm. you, you know the uh, the parable of the scorpion and the frog. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. It's one of those. People don't change. Can I ask you about like uh uh there's there's one other sign that I see on the desks in Pine Gap which none of the primary characters seem to be associated with there's some operation out there it's called C period M period Do you have any idea what that sign would signify to us Yeah countermeasures countermeasures yeah is that kind of like is that kind of like ci yeah except uh, it's it's broader than that and, and oh yeah and uh, in other words this is the defense where the rest of the stuff is the offense oh so this is more on like a global or like a more abstract level of counterintelligence then yeah. So, like, on a more strategic level. Well, counter counterintelligence is very intimate. You know, you get in there and you talk to people, 
and uh, you know, and basically, what you're doing is uh, is you're following people around, which you don't really want to do, because it's a ten to one operation. You know? uh -huh. I used to have a guy look at me and say, "Are you following me?" And I said, "God, my God, what an ego you have! Whatever makes <laughs> you think you've done anything important enough to be followed." <laughs> And uh, <laughs> well, were you being sincere, or were you? I was. Uh, I was. Right. The, okay. the, the guy ran a comic book shop. It wasn't exactly <laughs> important. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, that would be my cover. If I was, right. you know, if I was a Soviet mole, I'd be like, I will, I will open Soviet comic book shop to sell you Wonder Woman comics for American dollars. Well, well, well. Actually, if you look around, the, you look around the valley, you see these rather interesting little businesses which never seem to be open, and I think a lot of them are covered for foreign agents, uh, but not necessarily the Russians. There's also the Chinese, right. the Chinese, and the Iranians, and uh, the, I know a number of them are in the marijuana trade. Uh, I don't know if you do. You remember where uh, Laurel Plaza used to be? Yep. Uh, just down on Laurel Canyon, uh, there was that little mini mart with that bank, and it was like a, a giant part over by Unar you remember United Artists Theater? Do you remember that? Yep, that whole place is like run down, all the windows are blacked out, with maybe an exception of like two or three businesses that are actually businesses. But I've heard that they're running like uh, that they're growing there. Um, is that something like you're talking about, or are you saying there might be something else where it's yeah, like here's well, a business and they're in no, no, it'd be somebody who would have like uh, you know, repairs watches. Oh, think about there it, just some... like in uh, what was that? What, wait, what, what, Argo, what was Argo, Argo, it's where I was Argo. going with that, yeah. Um, uh, okay, before there was also Atomic Blind, uh, the jewel, the jeweler. Before I mention Argo, though, like just, you know, like we all live in the valley and like, yeah, I mean, there's certain establishments that, um, I, I, man, I feel like a, I'm going to sound like such a fucking racist if I say this, but like there are some pizza joints in the valley that I strongly suspect as being covers for the mob <laughs> because they're <laughs> never open. But they're always there, and there's always traffic going in and out of, like, the back doors. That's all I'm going to say. Yeah, well, that's not racist. That's just observational. No, I, I came across to an auto shop, which I thought was a little suspect, because all of the mechanics are sitting in the lobby there, and they're nice, neat, clean uniforms. And uh, they didn't seem to want my business. Oh, well, there you go. Yeah. Right, right, right. Want, and it, you know, like the reason they, the they reason, wanted to charge me seventy five dollars for looking at at my problem. The reason David and I brought up Argo was, uh, it, did you see that movie, Francis? No, oh, yeah. Okay, uh, you know, like um, you know, it was brought up, like yeah, these um, it's the Iranians, right? Like yeah, they don't necessarily have agents in the u.s but they do have cousins they do have you know brothers and sisters that have jobs 
hear on Hollywood way, they hear stuff back and, and it just, you know, goes through that channel. It doesn't, you know, the, the collection of intelligence is not always just, you know, uh, by like sworn to secrecy agents, but often just by, just by asking your cousin, like, Hey, what's going on over there? Yeah. Well, let's talk about the difference between, the Soviets and the Chinese back here during the Cold War. Let's do. Uh, their collection methods. The Soviets would send a submarine and men would row, row ashore in the dead of night to collect a, pa- a pail of sand. Okay? Mm-hmm. The Chinese simply sent everybody to the beach and everybody came back with one grain of sand. The Chinese are matrix collectors. They collect, uh-huh. they collect everything and sort it out. Right. So they use open source extensively. And they use it enough so that they don't really need to, you know, break into anything. They're not prone to do that. Right. Uh, whereas the Soviets, you know, were more adventurous and they would do things. You know, they had that whole thing that Obama shut down up in New Jersey. You know, it was tolerated. It was basically a singet base and where they were running some, uh, you know, observational agents out of. And, you know, not to make trouble, but when Obama found out that they were interfering with the election, he closed the whole thing down uh, just to punish them. But, you know, by that time, the die was cast, and there wasn't anything else he could do, and then Trump was in. And, of course, Trump loves the Russians. Right. And loves the Russians and loves the Russians, and what the hell do they have on him? Right. <laughs> yeah. It's the I'm, old, I'm sure they definitely got some compromise on him or idea or ego, probably ego, right? No compromise. No. No, this is blackmail. Serious blackmail. Yeah, I think I think they Well, I mean, we 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 don't know. Uh, we we yeah, don't know. That's, I'm, I'm that's my impulse. That's my impulse or my instinct. I'm speculating, but I'm not saying anything that hasn't been said by people with uh, stars on their shoulders. Right. Um, one of the things we didn't talk about was humming. Human intelligence, yeah. Yes. Uh, it wasn't directly talked about or pointed out in the story, but it seems to me like there was a lot going on in the background. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and one of the things that um, I really liked, because, you, you know, you had mentioned uh, the, the Chinese uh, operative, uh, or the businessman, as we're told, but it's, I, I don't know, I'm pretty sure he might have been an operative, but um, oh, oh, you think he's having an affair with the boss's wife just for fun? For fun? Yeah, no, no, I don't, I don't think that was an accident at all. Uh, actually, that made my uh, number one best tradecraft was uh, him basically seducing the wife of yeah. uh, Ethan, who's like the head American honcho at the base. Yeah, um, and it's but, it's Ethan's fault because he's so tied up in his work. He neglects yeah. her, and she gets lonely. Right, exactly. Stupid, stupid, stupid. Yeah, you know that, that that's definitely a leak. You know, and I actually wanted to point that out as my like number one worst trade craft was just him neglecting his wife, because uh, that's definitely somebody that other people would go after. I'm, I'm sure that's not the first time uh, a high-ranking official's wife got seduced. Well, no. Uh, well, well, the uh, Stasi had an entire program for that. They would seduce secretaries. 
most charming young men. We don't get any direct, like, uh, expository dialogue about Hamint, other than maybe, you know, talking about the leaks during the investigation. But um, it seems like there's a lot of Hamint going on throughout the story. What, what were some of your favorite moments with that? Or what do you th- what do you think were some some great moments or some big bundles bungles that I guess some of the crew went through? Oh, that little bit at the end where the Chinese guys <laughs> seated next to the indigenous uh, activists. And right. she's the one who brought the MacGuffin in with the uh, the information on it. And you know mm-hmm. you know that they are working together. Then uh, she is looking to throw all the white people out of Australia if she can. And she thinks the Chinese will help. If you take it on faith that the Chinese want to get this information made public, they want to route it through a person that doesn't have obvious um, Chinese affiliation Precisely. to do it. Right, right. So yeah, that but- it looks like the leak was made by a person that had a different axe to grind. Yeah, it's it's deflection and deception. It's false writing. Right. Yeah. Deflection. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I, I think that's going to be my number one. And with the false flagging, you know, with Eloise, you know, uh, you know, spoiler alert for our listeners, you know, Eloise turns out to be uh, the more, or at least implied, um, what, what do you think about using her? Like, it seems like she might have been a false flag as well, where they kind of used her as a tool to get their things done. And, it, you know, her I, I believe her motivation was, uh, you know, career advancement. Yeah. When I went back and looked at the show more closely, I feel like there might be some actual open questions about who is the traitor or the mole, what did you think? Did you buy the Eloise story or? Oh yeah. Yeah. They said, they set it up. I mean, it's drama one-on-one foreshadowing. And then, uh, you know, a little bit of doubt, a little red herring and, and then the resolution and the ending. It's a uh, Chekhov's rule about the pistol on the mantle. Well, I mean, yeah, I see that. I mean, I definitely see Eloise as being, uh, the one that's the story, the script is definitely pointing to. However, do, do you see any possibility that it's actually like a double blind play and it's actually the Laotian chick that is that planted the virus, but that Eloise was a better, um, you know, someone to throw under the bus. Mm. Uh, that's a little too much inside baseball for me. Okay. <laughs> there, I, I actually did catch during the cafeteria scene uh, that Eloise was standing in front of the microwave. Um, uh, it's it's like a split nanosecond of, of a shot, but uh, I went back and looked. So I'm pretty sure that's what the storytellers want us to believe. But with that ending, it, it, it does seem like a little bit up in the air. 
But, you know, you, you were talking about uh, Drama 101 and giving us the red herrings. What did, you, what did you think about how they kind of portrayed Eloise maybe having a little crush on Moses as kind of throwing the audience off? Christ, a little crush? She was stalking. Yeah, right. She was stalking yeah. the man. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't read it like that. But uh, yeah. okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. No. Yeah. She's. You know, she's getting in in his business. She turns over the, the teenage uh, guest. You know, to mm-hmm. counterintelligence because she's jealous. Right. You know, who's this little bimbo to take my guy? Even though he's not my guy, right? <laughs> do you, do you think she might have picked up on some things that he might have been, you know, figuring things out, and she was trying to throw him under the bus, or do you think it was just a a crush? Oh, I think I, I think you probably have it right there. You know, she wanted to deflect that, but it was also a crush. But you know, hell has no fury like a woman scorned. Right, right. Yeah. Right. And there's, in my opinion, and I, you know, like, um, this is something that's, uh, people on Reddit picked up on. I picked up on at the, remember how, um, you know, like, obviously like, or we're, we're given to believe Eloise is way more intelligent than she's being given credit for. And there's the embarrassing scene at the party where, Moses is, you know, kind of being a dick about it, about like, what, you don't see this? You don't see this? But there's a scene in the elevator at in, in the last episode where Moses says, you know, like, I'll just say one thing about it. Like, it was absolutely genius and I never would have thought about it. And she just, she just gushes. You know, she immediately responds if you're if you're looking for clues. Yeah. Um, and maybe Moses know. is smart enough to know that if he throws that out there, he might get a reaction. I don't think he's that smart. I don't, well, I really well don't. obviously, you know, he's the prototypical nerd. He's got no social mm-hmm. skills and no real... And, severe Asperger's. Yeah, he's got <laughs> severe Asperger's and absolutely... Uh, he he would like to have an interest in woman in women, but he doesn't know how to go about it. I'm terribly shy, but I learned early on that that wasn't going to get me laid, so I tried to change. <laughs> right, you handed me this uh, a copy of your Perfect Spy, and I, I caught a couple of sentences, and uh, you you definitely are welcome on this show. With some of the things that you wrote about, I'm 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 really excited to actually finish this book. Well, it's it's a short book. It you know it was the front end of uh, my much longer memoir. You know, you uh, can find a couple of pieces out on my Patreon page. You can find the piece about the top secret groundbreaking ceremony for Field Station Augsburg, which will amuse you. Right, because it's a it's a a clash of cultures. Uh huh. Yeah. I, well, I'm definitely very excited, and I really appreciate the copy. Uh, so, uh, no, you did not shock us on that one, because uh, it's 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 definitely a lot. A lot of people's quests is uh, is 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 learning the 
the the the normal interactions that would lead to such a venture. <laughs> well, 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 what can I tell you? Everyone needs a hobby. Francis, are there any other things from uh, Pine Gap that you wanted to talk about? Just so that we could get it on record, and that way we could make sure to slip it in the show? Well, uh, you know, it's very realistic. As I said, I don't know whether or not it's real. I think that they had a lot of feedback from somebody in the Australian intelligence establishment to make it that Mm -hmm. real. Mm -hmm. And I think it is, among other things, a way of communicating to the Chinese and our other adversaries that we are watching you. Right. And we can see everything that you do. You know, right. the, the, the whole thing with the, all those alphabet people in the uh, Middle East is they have been pretty much eliminated because we have this kind of capability. Right. Absolutely. I, that's one thing I really definitely liked about the show is that we got to see a part of intelligence you don't get to see a lot in storytelling because it's not that exciting, but they found a way to make it really exciting. Yeah. Well, well, the, um, well, the nice, the nice thing at the end there was how the guy who was always being harassed by his father for having taken a know nothing job in Australia. He finally got a little of his own back when his father realized that voice. Oh, that was, that's so fucking touching. I really so like that resolution. That was smart script writing. Oh yeah, well yeah, it's it's from real life, you know. Some of us have fathers like that, and you can't say anything, and, and, oh, well, and you just gotta bite the bullet, right? You know. No. You've handled classified information that over time has become declassified. Well, I, I've been around it. I haven't personally handled it. Like, how does it feel to you to see, like, on CNN or, you know, whatever media outlets, like, what's the feeling that you get personally when something that you knew was going on, but you were not allowed to talk about is now, like, okay, now it's okay. To, to say because well, it's declassified. This has to do with the news cycle. You know, I'm also a reporter. Uh, te- yes, sir. Technical and trade magazines. One of the things that Lee and I like every once in a while is the gee whiz story about a new technology on the nightly news that is something that I covered 10, 15, or even 20 years before. I wrote a book on virtual reality before that was a real thing. You know, and it was the bestseller. Uh, but what was that book? Oh, uh, virtual reality and the exploration of cyberspace. I think you can buy a copy online. I used one for about four dollars. Virtual reality and the exploration and... exploration of cyberspace. Now, you it seems like you've done a lot of projects. You, you're working on uh, a script that had a you know successful play you just handed me two great books uh a perfect spy a memoir by francis hammett and security matters essays on industrial security um are there any things you really wanted to plug right now yeah i really want Uh, i really want to plug my civil war spy thrillers uh because i've reduced the price on the print copies um because they've been out there for a while and people seem to think that it's like fruit and it rots after a while but these are still pretty good stories 
Uh-huh. The Shenandoah Spies, a true story about a 17-year-old girl named Belle Boyd who joined the Confederate Army, became a spy and a scout, became very notorious for it uh, yeah. in uh, 1861, 1862, gave Stonewall Jackson critical intelligence that he needed for his rally campaign. Uh, oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you know, that's you know. Where, where can where can where can we find those? Amazon. And those are the Civil War spy thrillers. Is that the title of the series? Uh, well, no, uh, the entire. I've only done two in the series. The other one is called The Queen of Washington, and that's uh-huh. about the Confederate spy Rose Greenhow. Who, uh-huh. when I got into the research, I discovered she'd been spying since like 1849 or even before for the French and the British. And oh, wow. Her, her husband was the number three guy in the State Department. She managed, uh-huh. she managed to get him fired with her machinations. And that was all because of the social scene in Washington. She was sort of the successor to Dolly Madison in arranging balls and parties and getting young men important government jobs and things like that. She was the number, she was the number one spy in Washington at the early part of the war for the Confederacy, and she gave them the information that they needed to uh, win at first ball run. Oh. Yeah. And she and she got that in various ways. She seduced uh, Henry Wilson, the uh, chairman of the Senate uh, Armed uh, Military Committee, and she do, seduced a Captain Ellison, who was in charge of the defenses of Washington, and got from him a very important map. Mm-hmm. And Alan Pinkerton discovered all of this, arrested her, kept her in um, house arrest, and then in prison until she was finally released. And they basically tortured her, and they put her eight-year-old daughter in with her as part of the torture. So you know that's oh a, my God. yeah, that's a very outrageous uh, you know the things people will do in the name of their uh, cause kind of book. Yeah. Oh, there are also audiobooks of both of them. And can we find that only on Amazon? Amazon, uh, the audiobooks, Amazon, Audible, or iTunes. Yeah. And then there's, you know, a little thriller called Meltdown. Uh-huh. It's about a attack by domestic terrorists on a nuclear power plant. And then do you have any social media that you're active on that you want people to come find you, like Twitter or Instagram or something? I'm only on Facebook. Do you want them to come find you on Facebook? Well, they can. Whether or not I'll respond is another matter. It depends on what they say. <laughs> right. You know. Uh, well, look for look for Francis Hammett. Uh, you know, uh, check out his books. Um, I'm really excited to read some of these. Um, he, he gave me two great copies. I'll throw out like a very hearty thank you, Francis. Well, well, thank you very much. It's, it's been a lot of fun. You know, I think you've got uh, a really interesting program. I hope you'll invite me back sometime. I, I really enjoyed it. Well, we, I, I tell you one thing. Uh, I 100% once this uh, COVID emergency is over, uh, I want to invite you out and I'm going to buy you whatever lunch you want. <laughs> just sit there and just listen to all well you know I'm the typical starving writer never pass up a free meal yeah. <laughs> right <laughs> yep alright that's, okay. that's, that's a wrap that's a wrap thank you guys
We say goodbye and thank you to Mr. Hammett now, but David and I are going to return next week for continued discussion of Pine Gap, including our best and worst tradecraft and park bench rating for the show. As always, the best way to make sure you don't miss out on that is to hit the subscribe button on iTunes, Google, or your favorite podcast app. Also, you can find updates on our Facebook page or website, spieslikeus.net. And please, if you can help us out and give us some feedback, we're always trying to approve the show and your thoughts would be a big help. The preceding transmission sample for songs Ice Cold by Audio Nautics, Enter the Party by Kevin McLeod, and sound effects from freesound.org. Attributions and links are found at spieslikeus.net. Editing by Todd Hostetler. <laughs>